This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club for the month of August 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I am joined today from New York by Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. And by Isaac Chotner, the host of the podcast, I Have to Ask. Hey, Isaac. Hi, Katie. Um, I'm so glad you both could join us. And before we dive in, I should mention that September's book will be Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Now let's get started. Today, we'll be discussing Arundhati Roy's second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. It's a sprawling work about sectarian violence in India and Kashmir, filtered through the eyes of various misfits and rebels and reluctant witnesses, chief among them a transgender woman named Anjub and an illustrator named Tilo. Um, Isaac, I know you interviewed Roy, and Laura, you reviewed the book, so you're both experts. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, have to re- do you have to read the book to interview someone? I didn't know. I didn't get that. Message. Yeah, many people don't. Um, but Isaac, you're holding the line of, of integrity in that front. Yeah. Well, Laura, as um, the reviewer of this book, um, this is kind of an unusual question, but I wanted to ask you what you think the book's defining quality is. Oh, that's interesting because I feel that there are a couple of sort of strands of Roy's personality, which is always just been this strong, charismatic aspect of her work that comes through even when she's writing fiction that are sort of at work in in this story and they're kind of in tension with each other. So, um, so you know, like part, part of her, which is I think the really the novelist part of her, just really believes in the idea of love as something that is so powerful and has the ability to overwhelm the boundaries between people and that that's what she really believes in as a novelist. But then as an activist, she has ideas about politics and and injustice and what should be done about them. And I don't necessarily know that those two things mesh with each other. I mean, like the, the, the first attitude is often seen as kind of apolitical, you know, we're all alike, we all should, you know, um, just accept each other as we are and, and love has no boundaries. And then politics is often all about boundaries. So uh, I feel like that that's one of the things that made the novel interesting to me. It's not a novel that's full of sort of pat observations about life and uh, trouble and people. Yeah. I mean, Isaac, when you talked to her, did you have a sense of Roy's 
activist persona being different from her novelist persona or were they more integrated um, for you? Yeah. Uh, just before, I was just going to add to what Laura said. I, I was struck by that too. I was I was struck by the sort of um, – Laura talked about it in terms of like politics versus art. I was struck by kind of the optimism that she has in the book in, 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 her, non, in her fiction writing about individual people and allowing them sort of this dignity and the ability to, to make change and so on versus her political activism, which um, – I mean, I guess she embodies someone who who tries to make change, but but she's also just an incredibly pessimistic person. Um, her evaluations of of capitalism, of the kind of world order, of modern day India are incredibly bleak and um, frighteningly bleak. And you know, I think some of them are are right on target, some of them less so. But but that that kind of contrast is really interesting. When I when I talked to her, just to belatedly get to your question, she was. Um, you know, I think this is true with a lot of people. I mean, she's 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 extremely soft spoken and extremely nice, and has a very warm laugh. And um, you know, I guess when you meet people who their writing can often be fiery and passionate, I'm sure many people are like that. But uh, this is this is the first time I talked to her, and I was I was sort of um, she seemed much more like a, a typical uh, kind of fiction writing novelist who is sweet and doesn't want to talk about politics and instead <laughs> wants to talk about literature and you know uh she she the the sort of intense political side of her did not come across at all huh that's fascinating yeah she seems she was like nicer some... than most novelists, I should say. I should <laughs> no, it's not a necessarily super congenial bunch, but um but she just comes across as someone who's political zeal would just almost be uncontainable because it's clearly it's just like she she had this brilliant debut with um, the God of Small Things and then she just didn't write any more fiction for like 20 years. So um, so, you know, because she was so caught up in her activism. And so that seems like the life story of somebody who who just can't suppress her political passions and those are what she would lead with and so the uh, the fact that she just wanted to talk about literature i find sort of crafty and fascinating she doesn't seem to have the impulse either to spare the reader you know like she um she doesn't seem very solicitous of people's like delicate feelings when she's describing all kinds of torture and mutilation so i i can also it's surprising to hear that she's sort of holding back um, if she was doing it out of sort of a polite uh, reluctance to talk politics at this like friendly <laughs> interview, but sorry, I, I go would ahead. just uh, uh, no, I would just say two things about her. One is I, I should probably say that you know her political situation in India has often been a little bit dicey, and she's gotten in trouble with the government. So uh, an unwillingness or a not wanting to go on about politics might have there might be some completely understandable self-preservation instincts involved. But the, the other thing I was going to say, which is that if you read her nonfiction stuff, which um, I did, I, I actually wrote a very nasty piece about her for the New Republic about 10 years ago, which I half regret. But uh, it's very, very full of passion. And it's not, I mean, some people, you know, people write about politics in different ways, but she's someone who um, has a lot of trouble sort of quoting like UN studies correctly. She's not like a, she's not like a, 
ask. She's not like a policy wonk. This is passionate. And the the best things about her nonfiction books are the passion she brings and the care she shows for the people she meets and their life circumstances. She, as sort of a political writer in other ways, though, I think she's very weak. And um, in that sense, her political writing makes me think that she would be a better novelist than a political writer uh, versus other people who have spent the last 20 years writing about politics. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in passion as the word that keeps coming up because I wouldn't describe her tone as a kind of undilutedly passionate creature. Like, I, it, it seems tempered with sarcasm a lot. It's very ironic. It's almost in places kind of sing-songy, which was a little bit queasy-making, I felt, when she got to some of the barbarism that she's describing and she does it in this sort of punny, playful tone. Um, I'm using words from uh, Parul Segal's review in The Atlantic, which I thought was brilliant. But she does have this, like, punny and playful tone that can make it um, sort of uncomfortable uh, when it's juxtaposed with what she's describing. I think of that as being one of the sort of hallmarks of 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 Indian fiction is that it that there is this almost there's so much sort of humor, sometimes dark humor, sometimes just slapstick humor in it. There is this sense of the human comedy, although in her case it's like the human tragic comedy and yeah. part of the the sort of savage humor in the in those scenes or in the way that she depicts the juxtaposition of like really I mean the example that I used in my review was that the the in Kashmir the 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 people the Kashmiris who are taken in taken in by the Indian army or the intelligence I I, I it wasn't always clear to me exactly what agency was at work yeah. but you know they're basically taken to this torture house you know it's like this detention center where they're they are, to, are going to be tortured and it's in an old movie theater and so when they're sort of signed in they're like under these Cadbury chocolate signs you know in this place yeah. that used to be this place of entertainment and that that is is you know it it's I wouldn't it's you can't even call it funny but it just has this again really dark ironic bite to it that mm-hmm. that has to do with the fact that so so many different qualities and so many different kinds of people are sort of superimposed on each other that it, you you almost can't not have the sort of pulled back perspective that that is sort of the hallmark of humor. I, I was just wondering with the Kashmir sections, um, how much of that was intentional. I thought it was um, chunks of it were pretty hard to follow unless it's like an issue that you happen to be interested in. And I wasn't, I, I, again, you know, one of the issues of going on in Kashmir is that the the, the political situation there is so, uh, I don't know if you can swear on this podcast, but uh, yes. it's, it's so fucked up that, um, you know, bodies will turn up and nobody really has any idea who's done it. And um, or exactly, you know, the circumstances of which it's just this sort of insane political situation now. And I, I I did wonder how much of that was intentional, although as a reader, I found it somewhat jarring to read. Yeah, I would say confused is a descriptor I would apply to myself for much of this book, which I think also just exposes my own lack of knowledge about some of the world events that she's addressing. But I, I did feel that there were kind of 
axiomatic truths or, or things that she depended on us to just sort of internalize or have already internalized as obvious or like basic context. And I felt like I was playing catch up for much of the book, sort of like, oh, why does it matter that his name sounds Hindu? Oh, I see. Or like why it, it wasn't like immediately obvious to me why the Indian government would encourage a principal journalist to like write against their cause. And then I sort of had to like extrapolate outward from what she was saying and like I got there eventually but it you know um I don't think that she like handholds you um and I guess I wonder whether that's her responsibility but it was not the easiest reading experience for me well but also I think that um you know when I I was trying to remember I I did not I did not read God of Sm- reread God of Small Things before reading ministry. And so I'm just going back on my memory of it. And I remember really loving it, but also being really confused by that novel as well. And part of that is this chronological shuffling that she does, mm-hmm. where I think, you you know, whatever her reason for doing it, and I feel like I don't see a clear aesthetic reason. So I don't like I tend to think, why are you doing this? You know, like, what is the point of this? Um, But I mean, I think it probably would be easier to follow without her even having to sort of resort to a lot of exposition if she wasn't into this whole chronological shuffling so that you don't always, you see the event, event before the cause or you see the effect before the cause. And, um, and, and you're often sort of you don't know what things mean because you don't know what happened just before that and i don't know isaac you t- talk to her do you have a sense of of how time and causality work in this novel or did she say anything about that no that's a good we should have talked before my interview that that would have been a good question <laughs> we did I, a little uh, bit i did not ask any <laughs> oh yeah we did actually that's true i uh, i did not ask anything that interesting but that that's a very interesting question although i found this book just to return to god of small things i mean i i agree that some of the chronology stuff the shifting back and forth was hard in god of small things but i felt that the the larger issues cuz you know the book touches on communist politics and caste and stuff. I, I felt that that was addressed sort of more clearly to readers who are not familiar with some Indian history and politics than this book, which I did mm. think was was more difficult. I, I, I didn't, I mean, maybe I just happened to have read enough about the political situation. I felt like I was more or less on solid footing. And then also, you know, I was like, Gujarat, Gujarat. I, you know, I knew that there had been a riot there. And so when um, Anjum goes there, like I, I had Wikipedia there. So I was like, I feel like it's, you can't, you you know, with, with the, with that resource, it's like, people can't confuse you as much as they used to. Um, But, you know, it, it definitely is a, a, it's sort of like that whole part where they're in Kashmir and Tilo is in Kashmir and then her friend whose name I forget who's the who's the journalist um who's, she marries him right um mm-hmm. the it has this sort of weird Graham greenish quality yes where like yeah. everybody has like these weird ulterior motives and that sort of dark the dark humor reminded me a little bit of Graham Green as well even though 
otherwise her fictional sort of style is so different from his. And, um, and one of the things that I really liked in one of the ways that the chronological shuffling I thought was effective was that there's a, among the several men who are sort of in love with this, this, um, uh, designer, Tilo, um, there is a, a sort of intelligence officer who's going through like a dossier that is either on her or left by her. I mean, he finds it in this apartment that he used to let her live in after she leaves her husband. And, um, and, and then he's also talking about his own work because he has some connection to the stuff that went on in Kashmir. He describes this case that's presented to, you know, an American sort of agent, social agency worker, um, a, a petition for, for asylum. And this lady, this Indian lady describes like this whole sort of history of trauma and terrorization at the hands of these sort of Muslim extremists. And she and her husband have come to America hoping to, to find sanctuary. But, you know, she's still afraid that these Muslim extremists are going to follow her and perpetrate more atrocities on her. And, and he's so sarcastic about it. And you're just like, wow, you know, he's a cold bastard. And it's not till later in the novel that he explains that actually all of the sort of hardships and tortures and that she describes herself as having suffered are things that her husband has done to Kashmiris. And that not only are they lying, but they're actually stealing the stories of his victims, which I feel like in an Arunati Roy novel that is like one of the worst things you can do to somebody is to take their story away from them. And, and that's why he's, he, he is just like, you know, so nasty about it, but you don't know it at first. And you're just like, what? But then you're put in the position of that, that American agency worker Mm -hmm. of, of, of sort of thinking, Oh, this poor woman, how terrible, those awful Muslim terrorists. And, and, and so you're sort of, prejudices are engaged and and only later do you realize how wrong you were and i feel like it's effective in that particular instance hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Isaac, what did you think of the sort of cyclical? Yeah, I just wanted to ask Laura, what what, what was specifically the Graham Greene connection you were drawing there? Oh, I think that that character and the his sort of cynicism the jadedness, he, yeah. He seemed like a Graham Greene character to me. And and then in particular the the sort of black irony about the situation in Kashmir. I I don't think that she is a Graham Greene like novelist because first she's not a Catholic and second she she doesn't um she's not as she's not sort of jaded in the same way that he is. Although she doesn't obviously have that high of an opinion of 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 human behavior, especially in people in power. But, um, but yeah, that was, it It was a sort of um, 
and the 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 journalist the sort of kind of weird double agenda sort of environment that they were in yeah and also he has a drinking problem which yeah me, sort of rang <laughs> yeah, that of noir yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 I mean, I really love that character because I felt mm-hmm. like parts of the um, the novel could be a little bit um, had a little sort of f- overly fruity flavor. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, like the the sort of lovable florid eccentricities of the Hedra were, um, you know, could seem a bit. I don't almost cute and so yeah Yeah. and so this so this character with just his biting and just his you know I feel like he's maybe that dark side of her you know is is speaks through that guy but I I just thought he was just a nice balance to that did did you did you two feel that the book held together um cohesively or was it was it more um that you thought that the different strands all had their sort of worthy things about them or enjoyable things about them, but it didn't kind of hang together. Well, especially now, a couple months after reading it, at least for you, Laura. When when Roy brings Tilo and Anjum together in this sort of bizarre compound that Anjum has built in this graveyard, which is the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, um, I think that she means us to see them as the sort of locus of everything that is sort of worth um saving in 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 India and in humanity. I mean, I don't know that for her there's that huge of a difference. I mean, I think that that the whole human condition is represented. It's not just the Indian condition. And so um so you know that is her ideal society, these sort of um odd this odd collection of people who have been left out of the sort of winter circles, but who create this bond. Um, and so that is how she brings, like that is how she means to bring it together. Whether it feels like the sort of Hedgerus storyline and the Kashmir storyline really reflect on each other that much in that fruitful of a way, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and also just on a very like basic plot machinations level, I wasn't sure why Tilo left the apartment with the baby to go to this bardo, <laughs> to the disaster utopia that's run by Anjum. Like, you know, I could see like why not, but <laughs> like it didn't seem like an urgent. Uh, or maybe one of you can clarify for me, like why was that like such a necessary move? Is that because that's where the baby is? No, she has the baby. No. She has the and baby. And so is she bringing the baby back to Anjum? Yeah, but there is no back. Anjum didn't, like, Anjum expressed a liking for the baby when Anjum encountered the baby. Um, but I, I guess I just didn't really understand. Like, it felt like there needed to be some sort of, like, revelatory, inevitable moment that brought those two plot lines together and like, oh, I see why it's necessary for her to go live in the graveyard with Anjum now. But it just felt like a complete, like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, uh, I mean, it's hard to raise a baby on your own. I mean, I saw, I, see, I saw her as reaching the point where her isolation 
just didn't work for her anymore. And she wanted to find a, some kind of community. And this was the community that she found. I, I was just going to ask, uh, well, Laura, you mentioned this earlier, kind of about her style and Indian writers. Um, are there either of you, I mean, any any other writers you think that um, that she reminds you of or you think she's doing something similar to? Well, Maybe to we me, she, her biggest influence seems to be Garcia Marquez. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, but there is just this way that um, – I feel like so many Indian novels that I've read whose names are not coming to me right now from Salman Rushdie to Rohinton Mystery, if that's how his name is that's pronounced, correct, um, have this sort of slightly epic, but but mostly it's mostly just the sense that when you have all these people together in this kind of dense condition – Everyone sees each other's flaws all the time and that the only real kind of survival mechanism is humor. And um, and so, you know, like, is there ever like an Indian family novel without like seemingly like a half dozen aunties in it who are who are just provide all of this great sort of running commentary on what's going on and who are hilarious. And it's one of just one of the great things about Indian fiction, it, for me, is the aunties that seem almost inevitable, mm. and and they're what they have to say. They're like this kind of chorus uh, that I find really like. Whenever they turn up, I'm like, ah, oh, I love this. So you know, it's just yeah, a I taste. Mean, yeah. A lot of people have made the uh, Marquez connection just in terms of the magical realism that she seems to use somewhat sparingly, I think, here, um, just mostly with animals who are, slight, who are slightly more human than you expect them to be. Um, but this is a weird – and maybe you guys will fruitfully shoot this down because it could be wrong. But it sort of reminded me of Franzen in that she has written this sprawling novel that is seeking to capture like an entire country's – deepest sensibilities and and sort of there's the surface plot and then there's all this sort of like thematic material underneath about like the national character and the history and um, sort of individual relationships that are then um, blown out into uh, political dynamics. And so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Isaac, did it remind you of um, any particular writers? That no, that's uh, that's that's another writer that I've interviewed that I haven't read a word of. No, um, I actually uh, that's actually interesting to me about the looking at a country um, in in that way. I think Marquez is right. Um, you know, it's funny. I I found an interview with Roy where she was asked about the Rushdie um, influence, and and she said, "I'll just read you guys what she said." She says, "I think that the comparison to Salman has been just a lazy response. When in doubt, if it's an Indian writer, compare them to Salman because he's the best known Indian writer." When I say this, I feel bad because I think it sounds like I don't very, think very highly of him because I do. He's a brilliant writer. I think critics have a problem when a new writer comes along because they want to peg an identity on them. Um, I mean, I think that that's, that's broadly a good critique, but I, I, I do think that she's probably pretty influenced by Rushdie. It's kind of hard to believe she isn't. And some of the playfulness in this book um, really did remind me of both uh, Garcia Marquez and Rushdie and um, – I don't. I mean, the the they and themselves are two writers who are compared a lot. So this is not just an Indian thing. But um, uh, so that that definitely stuck out to me. And the the aunties thing that uh, Laura was saying it actually actually reminded me a little bit of White Teeth. Huh. Yeah, 
<laughs> the early sections of white tea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just um I just find that Indian fiction is often capable of being serious without being solemn and that that's one of the sort of strengths of the the national literature that American literature has this incredible rich tradition of humor but always this ambivalence about it and this feeling that it's not really it, like it lessens the sort of weight of a of a of a work and i just i it it it's always been this kind of weird dichotomy in the way americans look at their national literature that i don't think indians suffer from yeah although i do have to like return to just like my profound um, discomfort with like some of the effects of that tone, just like the sort of chiming, jingly, tinkly quality to the way that she writes when she's writing about things that are truly horrific. Um, I, I understand that this is like existing in a tradition and it was very effective, but it also just weirded me out. <laughs> well, I wouldn't put that particular quirk in with the sort of like I don't think that's something that you see a lot in Indian fiction. I'm talking mm. more about the sort of a kind of a comic sense of human character, is, mm. is, which I which I, I think is another thing that she she might share with Franzen. Although he's much more interested in really lifting up the hood of these characters and finding out every little thing that makes them work, you know, and I don't think she's that interested in sort of excavating her characters psychologically. That's a really good point. They are kind of um, cartoonish, like they're a little bit, a little bit. they yeah. sort of embody different social movements. And they, I, I you know, they're, you can different, you can definitely differentiate between them, but there's not like a kind of recognition that you feel um, like, oh, yes, like I've experienced that shade of, of anger or heartbreak or attraction or whatever. Well, there's a distance. You know, when Anjum comes back from Gujarat, she has suffered this trauma and she can't like for most of the book, you have no access to it. You know, you right. only know how she behaves. And so you're kind of, you know, she's one of the two main characters and you're really shut out of what is like one of the defining events of her life until pretty late in the book. So you're, you know, you are pushed back from the characters to a certain, to a certain degree. Well, I also, I mean, I've been thinking about Katie's friends and thing and, um, and then you just mentioned Gujarat, but, um, you know, I think with friends and his sort of, his both ability and sort of desire to encompass broad ideas and themes, you know, to sort of describe America or whatever it is that, you know, he's been described as trying to do. Um, you know, I, I do think there's something similar going on here. And and it did, I, I the Gujarat thing, um, I think, you know, in many ways is kind of the defining event in India of the last several decades just because not just the people who died, but also it was presided over by the man who's currently the prime minister and is sort of uh, an embodiment of the political moment and ideological moment right now in India. So I totally got that. I, it did feel a little bit to me like I, I remember thinking before I read the book that, you know, she's been working on a book for 20 years. It's going to have to address Gujarat. And um, I don't know that that's a great place to be in. And I did feel like with the book that 
its effect on on the characters was was less um, less powerful, and it, it did feel slightly forced to me. So I do think that that's a danger, as there is in in sometimes with Franzen doing the same thing. I don't know if I made any sense there. No, definitely, and I I think the difference one of the differences for me um, is that I think Franzen has a stronger sense of shape, um, or his novels are just they're they have more of a shape and this felt like a stew um like her <laughs> mode of her mode of including everyone is to just throw everyone in a bucket and and um i think he sort of uh, <laughs> uh i'm not sure exactly how to he has put an this overarching structure being, that he's yeah. <laughs> that he's working on at least you know there there's a certain bagginess in the corrections but i think freedom had a definite was formed another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of slash talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. You know, I'll say in her defense that when, when Isaac, before I had even read the book and when Isaac was going to interview her and he he messaged me and he said, is there something that I should ask her? And I was like, oh, I can't really remember. And, you know, I, I really have to go back and read what I wrote about God of Small Things. I'm not going to have time to reread it and blah, blah, blah. And And I said, you know, I haven't read it yet, and I'm a little bit hesitant because I feel like oh, in those past, in the two decades that have come between reading the the two books, I've lost a lot of my tolerance for really sort of um, highly figurative literary prose that just is highly figurative for its own sake, you know, just to be literary, and um, and more and more, I'm like. God damn it, will you cut to the chase, you know? <laughs> Why can't you just say this in a straightforward way? To me, that has become far more my literary standard than the sort of like cascading clauses and, you know, the weird, you know, kind of very archly unusual metaphors or whatever. Do, but, do you think that's... Oh, go on. But but then when I but I did not. But I when I read this, I was I, she just had me because she mm-hmm. has the ability to do to sort of put some pressure on the language in a way that does not test my patience, which I really respect because my, sometimes my patience is really just hanging by a thread. And she also understands, I think, that um, that like the effect of great fiction often has more to do with sort of underlying metaphors than like sentences that are very beautiful. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor of the the sort of shanty town compound in the graveyard which I think is her metaphor for the whole novel, you know, it's sort of built one component at a time rather than under an overarching plan. It mm-hmm. it's a really it it just keeps yielding more and more, you know, the more you think about it, the more you get out of it, which is kind of the definition of literature, um, it, as opposed to something that makes you go, oh, how pretty. And so, so I, I was, I like, I had that 
that sort of wariness going in. But then she just had me. I mean, I really like her prose style. I really like the way that she she knows she puts together a metaphor that she understands that it's sometimes it's a structure that is underlying a huge section of the book. It's not just a turn of a phrase. And um, and. Yeah, I guess those would be called conceits if I was being more using more precise literary terminology. The conceit of that um, of of the ministry itself is just I think I just got so much out of it, and so I I I was like, oh yeah, she is really great. And then I remembered that what confused me before was not so much the language like not so much like language that is just sort of so overworked as it was the the chronology issue and the way that that she kept breaking the relationship between cause and effect so that I didn't really know where I was I mean I think though also what you're saying Laura about language and your tolerance for it I mean it um it just depends also on how good underlying you know, the characters in the story are. I mean, you know, just to go back to Rushdie, I mean, this guy who has been doing this in all of his books and when it works as it did in Midnight Children and Shame, um, it's phenomenal and astonishing. And uh, even as someone who doesn't really like that kind of writing, generally, I can appreciate it. But then you look at Salman Rushdie post-Shame and you're and like, he's bad. oh my He's God. so bad. <laughs> he's so bad, right. Yeah. I mean, there are passages in, um, I wrote a long piece about him and had to go read all of his novels. And I mean, there are passages in some of his later books, which are, I mean, as bad as anything a great writer could write. Because when when you don't have that underlying, you know, um, foundation of characters in a story and you start using language like that, it can just go quickly off the rails. Oh, boy. That yeah. is so true. Yeah. Yeah. When the language seems to be just language for its own sake, you you really – the pitfalls are many. I also think that there is a quality to her language that feels very disciplined, like these very rigorously composed, beautifully crafted passages, like the one where um, Tilo and Musa, Musa? Musa. Um, have sex. <laughs> that was a beautiful – that was just – I mean, it was sexy, but it was just like gorgeously written. And I think that – but also it's simply written too. Yeah. That's the thing is that she's she she's adopting this rhythm. Do, should I read it? I think I quote it in my piece so I can Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, that was a great piece. So I, we should there's so many things I want to talk to you about <laughs> okay. in that piece. But yes, please go ahead. All right. So this is very very romantic, which is just such a um such an unusual thing to find in a novel that is also as bitter as this one can be. But um but you know, it 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 isn't cloying, I don't think. I don't know. Isaac, you might have a different opinion. But uh, but this is how it, how it reads. They had always fitted together like pieces of an unsolved and perhaps unsolvable puzzle. The smoke of her into the solidness of him. The solitariness of her into the gathering of him. The strangeness of her into the straightforwardness of him. The insouciance of her into the restraint of him the quietness of her into the quietness of him. Yeah, that doesn't do it for me. But hey, everyone's got their own... Uh, Katie and I ideas. are like, oh! Yeah, well, you know, God bless you both. Um, it, it has... <laughs> what she, what, what, but it's interesting that, that none of the words that she uses there are really... Like, insouciance is probably the only remotely fancy word. She cuts down on the fanciness of the word when she is turning up 
the rhythm of her description of these two people who just fit together so perfectly. And, um, and so she, it's not too much, you know, it's not, you know, when, like you said, she's disciplined, she's turning one knob down when she's turning the other knob Mm -hmm. up. Yeah. And I also love how it ends with uh, two things that they have in common, alike that, um, and also just because as you point out in your review, this is a book about sort of overflowing the divisions and the boundaries between people. And this is a very mechanical description of overcoming barriers and how exactly that works. Um, So I felt that thematically it was also kind of central to the book. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, it is about love, which I think, if you, you know, to go back to your original question, I think that despite all of the sort of horrors and other and sort of political considerations and historical elements that are pulled into this novel, that that's really the theme of it is love. Isaac, I'm like waiting for some cutting remark to puncture our <laughs> no, sentimental I, 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 <laughs> conclusion no. here. No, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't love the writing of that scene, but I, I was mm-hmm. also, um, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to what you guys are saying, and uh, it's interesting. But I, I don't, I don't have anything. To well, add how did you that. feel about the writing style in general, uh, Isaac? I actually liked it broadly. I mean, I, I, I think I alluded to this earlier. I didn't feel like the book totally f- um, fit together as a whole, but, but I liked it, and I thought it was, um, I thought it was pretty compelling, and. Um, I, uh, you know, nor- as I said, normally I, I was I was a little worried I was going to be kind of opposed to it. And I think I actually liked the book more than a lot of people did, um, as I think you did, too, Laura. Um, yeah. Well, we should talk about uh, Parole's piece. Katie, would you care to to, you know, speak to it? She's now the the one of the daily book critics of The New York Times, although this piece that this review that she wrote appeared in The Atlantic. Um do you think you could summarize some of her her objections to the book? Um, I can I can say some of the things that like keep sticking in my mind about it. One is that she notes that this isn't a novel per se. She observes that um, sort of stonework and gravestones are important motifs that keep coming up, and the book itself uh, resembles a monument. And um, she says that she thinks that perhaps the book is less kind of like a textured description of life in India or life on earth um, and more of an offering to the people who have suffered and died um, due to all of this violence and brutality. And as such, the characters are less human than symbols. Um, There is a lot in that review. Another thing that was really interesting to me is she characterizes the graveyard as a kind of Eden, but a reverse Eden that is built not on innocence, but on sort of weary and accepting experience, um, which I found very moving and very apt, um, especially because I think that um, Anjum herself as this kind of integration of opposites, a sort of restless integration of opposites, is someone who is sort of continually coming to terms with contradiction and paradox and and sort of knitting those together. Now, that's interesting because Eden is at the beginning, you know, the myth of Eden is the beginning of history, but maybe it's also a reverse Eden because it's sort of happening at this sort of end point of history because the book is definitely very fatalistic in, in a certain way. I mean, there is a sort of 
I mean, what you say about your interview with her, Isaac, really resonates for me because she's she's you, we could call her an activist, but she there's this sense that she just doesn't believe that this is ever going to change. Yeah, there's definitely like a ramshackle post-apocalyptic yeah. vibe to this. I mean, it is a cemetery too. Yeah. Um, and something that I loved that you had pointed out, Laura, was that um, for someone so invested in tearing down unnecessary walls, um, sort of the most uh, – powerful wall that you can create between two people is between a, a living person and a dead yeah. person. And so she's kind of transgressively testing that border too. Every bedroom has a grave in it. Yeah. So yeah. the person basically is sleeping with a corpse. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing image, you know, like the idea of just living with the dead. Um, but, you know, Many societies feel that way. So, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure if she means by that that we should not forget the dead or if she just means that soon you will be dead. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of a I mean, one of the great things about that metaphor is that you is that it eludes being decoded in yeah. a in a way that that all great metaphors do. And doesn't Musa say something like all of the Kashmiris who seem to be alive are actually dead? Um, yeah. He, he has some sort of uh, prophetic, uh, <laughs> yeah. difficult to decipher statement to that effect. Um, I did think that that knowing that she had been raised as a, as a Syrian Christian and that her first novel was about the Hindu caste system. Um, I, I did. So, I do sometimes wonder if there if there isn't a tension between, like a cyclical, like like the Judeo Christian tradition is very linear. Like we're we're going in a certain direction, and this is where we started, and this ha happened along the way, and it you know it's a vector. History is a vector, and it's headed in this one direction towards the last judgment, and then heaven, but. That's not exactly the Hindu view of how history plays out, and um, and in a certain way, the you know the the it it might make it harder to have the same sort of level of reformist zeal mm -hmm. if you sort of think that things are going to repeat over and over again. I don't know, Isaac. What do you think about that? I feel like you've read more Indian literature than either of us. Well, no, I mean, I was I was just thinking about it in terms of what you said about um, her books kind of jumping back and forth. Yeah. The lack of kind yeah. of linear. But, uh, you know, her political writing, um, <laughs> it is it's it's very kind of doom laden. Um, yeah. That kind of uh, I mean, I don't I don't know what what she would call herself, maybe a radical, but um, her it, it's all kind of very um Capitalism is destroying the earth and um, it's destroying people's souls and it's destroying their environment and it's destroying their ability to make a nice life. And um, it's it's very it's, – it's sort of um, – it's overwhelmingly bleak without much sense of rebirth. At least, you know, I haven't read her nonfiction now for several years but that's that's how I, how I remember it. So she presents herself her political writing is more like she's just bearing witness she's not saying she's not advocating so much 
No, she's doing both. I mean, you know, some sometimes she writes, you know, she writes about kind of environmental destruction and, and dams in India. That was an early thing. And then yeah. she traveled with all these Maoists who are in these tribal areas in India that are fighting fighting the government um, for land and resources. And those, I mean, you know, those are not really, I mean, they're bearing witness in one sense, but they're also, her, her point of view is very clear. And that's how she got into trouble in India for um, saying things about the Maoists, which um, uh, were not appreciated by the central government. And I think we're, we're broadly thought by a lot of people as being um, slightly naive, even people who... Um, think that many tribal people in India have been screwed over by um, development and by by the central government. So she, I mean, th- there is this sort of weird tension between like the idea that, you know, we are, if, if we are doomed, then what is the point of sort of agitating for change? Like, I just find that very admirable about her. I mean, I don't agree with her on everything politically, but she is someone who... Um, puts herself out there and is willing to risk, um, you know, risk things. And and also as someone who's so kind of pessimistic about where where India is headed, is willing to speak up and try to make the least bit of change. And um, I think that that's, uh, that's incredibly admirable. Hmm. We're back. We're circling back to the um, novelist self versus activist self. And I just wonder whether the activist self is sort of shaking her head at this like impulse to, you know, like we have a character who's reincarnated basically, right? Like baby Jabin um, dies and then another baby Jabin emerges into the narrative. And I, I just wonder if a part of her is sort of shaking her head and saying, oh, there's no way that would work in the real world or whether these two selves are knit together more sort of fluidly than um, well, it does seem like the redemption that she sees is almost entirely on a private, intimate level. I mean, the love between particularly a mother and a child, even if it's not the biological mother, but the sort of women, even if they're not, you know, if they weren't necessarily born women, but, you know, who want like the maternal maternal love seems to be something that um, that is like the counterpart to all of the the sort of brutality that gets depicted in and and the just the general coldness and heartlessness that gets depicted in the rest of the book just this instinct when you see this vulnerable creature to sort of take it in and take care of it and raise it and and you know pour your care into it and um and that is like the you know, the intimate or the personal life is the subject of uh, of the novel. And if she feels like that's the only place where there's anything good in the world, then it would make sense that her novels have a little bit more um, hope in them than her political writing. Yeah, that's an interesting are, point. Yeah, we're running up a little bit on time. So I wonder if either of you have additional points you'd like to raise. I think I think that was one of the best podcasts anybody's ever done. Should leave it right there. <laughs> wow! I hope we. I hope no, we no, that sounded on. too sarcastic. I thought it, I thought it was a really good conversation. Yeah, that's all I meant. It was. Yeah, Sorry. No, this was a that, that sounded, That's yeah. how you know that it was actually a worthwhile book is that you can have like a conversation about. And it's not true of all. That's true. Novels, that's true. you know, some novels you could talk about forever. 
and they're just bad. But, you know, I, I think that if you're sort of on the line about it, there's enough going on that both both as a both aesthetically and in terms of like the content or what she's trying to say that, you know, like it's just like that metaphor. You know, you just the more you look at it, the more you see and the more you see, the more you want to go on looking is yeah. to me really like the definition yeah. of art. And definitely, like, if your aesthetic is everything but the kitchen sink, yeah. like, there's plenty of material <laughs> Yeah, to yeah, you about. do have to be kind of, you do have to toughen up a little bit. Like, if you're a sensitive soul mm-hmm. and you can't deal with violence or cruelty, then I would stay away from Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Yeah. Well, it's one not thing a, that... your cute Indian novel. It's not that, you know. It's it's pretty bloody-minded in some Yeah, way. this is not like a Bollywood yeah. <laughs> uh, take. But one thing that we do like to do on the Audiobook Club at the end of a conversation is go around and just say whether we would recommend the title. So I'll start with you, Isaac. Would you recommend The Ministry of Utmost Happiness to our readers or listeners? I would, yeah. All right. One yay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. Miller. Was I supposed to say more? Yeah. Um, no, would, no, you're fine. You know, <laughs> I, my belief always in recommending books is that you need to know who you're making the recommendation to. Like if it's a person mm-hmm. who really, like I said, is squeamish or very, very sensitive or uh, doesn't like a sort of sprawling narrative, then no, I would not say that, you know. But um, but otherwise, yes. I mean, I if I knew, you know, I would never say if I knew that that the person I was recommending it to was sort of well disposed to some of the elements in this, I would say absolutely yes. Um, but definitely, it's not for every single reader. Yeah, um, I would say my reading experience of this was pretty uneven. There were parts that I. Um, that washed over me and I found very uh, rewarding and other parts that I was incredibly frustrated um, or not, well, I was ill at ease. Um, but I would definitely recommend it if you have access to Laura Miller or Isaac Chotner to talk about it with you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, otherwise on the fence if you have nothing else to read and you're curious. Um, anyway, thank you guys so much for joining me with this. This was great. It was really fun. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch, and thanks for the assist, AC Valdez. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Isaac Trotner and Laura Miller, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.